as we're singing that song, I'm thinking of Joyce. In a day or two, she's going to be shouting that joy. She's going to be in the presence of the Lord. We have an awesome God. And I hope that we can't keep quiet about it. My very first message I ever preached as I started preaching was from Jeremiah. Jeremiah is a man that I greatly admire. He preached for 40 years. Never had one convert. He got tired of it. About 20 years into it. They put him in the stocks. They made fun of him. Ridiculed him. He said, Lord, I've had it. I'm not saying anything more on your behalf. But in the very same sentence, it was like a burning fire in my bones. And I couldn't keep quiet. Are we like that with our Savior? No. I appreciate Glenn sharing, picking up a hitchhiker. Most of us would do that today. But I know why he did. He didn't need companionship. He had plenty of companionship in the car. He had the Lord. He wanted to witness to him. And he did. And you don't know what may come of it. I praise the Lord. He's given me opportunity to share Christ more lately. And it's a blessing. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's like, well, I was a little late getting up here this morning, getting ready to go. And we get conversing and we forget time. I trust it's like that when we get started talking about our Savior. Do we just forget time and we just can't? Just, there's more to talk about. Let's just keep on talking about it. Someday there will be. Someday there will be. And I appreciate Josh directing our attention to the Savior because as we do talk about the problems we have that develop between each other, it's just a fact of life. It's not going to go away. But if we focus on the God of this book and the Christ of this book, the problems can be resolved. Nobody here likes conflict, but there's certainly plenty of it in the world. And we all know it's not going to get any better until the Lord comes. So why does God allow conflict to come into your life and my life? I believe for the one big reason. If we don't show how the world how to handle it, what are we going to get? Exactly what we got. A world full of turmoil. A world full of conflict. Marriage is falling apart constantly. And this week, we've got three couples coming in looking for hope. I'm praying God can use us to help them find that peace that only God can provide. We find it even in parenting. I have talked to parents, I love my children too much to spank them. And I take them to Hebrews chapter 12 immediately. And I have them read Hebrews chapter 12. I'm not going to go there this morning, but because I think you're familiar with that passage. God says that those he loves, he what? He chastens. And so if you withhold your spanking from your children, when God says you spare the rod, you 
spoil the child. You ever been in a grocery store, in Walmart or whatever, and seen a few? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all have. Discipline is proof of our love, starting with our father. Aren't you glad we got a perfect parent? Our perfect, my, I have a perfect father, don't you? Yes. Yep. He's a single parent. <laughs> and he does a pretty good job. As I shared with somebody this week of the situation that was going on, if this individual is truly born again, their father will not leave them alone until they get it right. The father knows what to do and he knows how to do it to bring it to a point of resolution. Not just between the parties involved here, between us. It first starts with here, the vertical resolution. We can't get this until we get that. Amen. However, some of us avoid conflict at all costs. And what we're doing is missing out on being taught what God wants us to learn. And we're missing out on being drawn closer to Him. Because when there's conflict this way, we first have to go here. When we get this right, then this works. And so it's a double indemnity type thing. So God's purpose is for us to help others with their struggles. Why? Because you and I have been there. Anybody here never had any conflicts in their marriage? And, and I've, I had a pastor... So in our 25 years of marriage, we've never had any arguments. Well, I'm thinking either one is dead or they're lying. Because I just can't imagine two people living together for 25 years and not having some kind of a conflict. That's just human, human nature. Because we all want to build our own kingdom. Where someone just really is a, a, a very good follower. It doesn't matter what's going on, but... Bible also says we have to be an example, like I mentioned before. We have to show the world how to solve conflict. I wish our political leaders were men of God like they used to be and went to the Word of God to find resolution, not just in our own nation, but across the globe. Then we need to seek God's wisdom for creative solutions. I don't know about you, but I believe the answer to every problem is here. God has them, and all we have to do is pursue Him and find them. So ultimately, it's all to show Christ's love and to be a witness of the gospel message. It's not always easy because when we're being attacked, I'm sure you can think of a moment in your lifetime when somebody came at you with both verbal barrels blazing. The language wasn't very good. The tone of voice wasn't good. Maybe even the accusations weren't very good. And how did we respond? We started shooting back. I believe the best thing for us to do is sit there with both ears open and take it all in. And then when they're all done, smile and say, thank you for your insights. 
I will evaluate this and I'll get back to you. Because even though those barrels are blazing, could there be any truth in what they're saying? Could be they are upset because what they're saying is true and, and yeah, they let it stew till it became to a boil, but was there any truth in it? If there's truth in what they say, what should we be doing? We should be making some significant changes to correct those things. And then when we get back to report them, I do believe we need to report back to them, let them know, here's what I have gleaned from what you shared with me, and I thank you for the insight. I am going to make these changes. But may I make a suggestion? And now we're going to teach Galatians 6.1. The next time you need to share something, come gently, please. I will be a little more receptive to it if it comes gently. And, and, of course, we're trying to practice it now on our own, aren't we? As we're coming to them, I want to address this to you gently. I'm not going to blaze both guns at you. I'm just going to come to you gently. Here's my insight. As how, here's some things that I've learned that I can help you with. And then we become a team. We work together to bring a biblical resolution. And Proverbs 15.1 says... A soft answer turns away wrath. Because we all know what happens when we start, don't we? They raise their voice, and then what do we got to do? And it just keeps escalating. But if, if, if you don't go anywhere, where do they got to go? You've turned the volume down. They, they don't have any place to excel because you're not raising your voice. And that's what God wanted. We'll look at that because I think there are some times when we do need to use a tone of voice a little bit. But we'll look at that in just a moment. But it's the hardest part for us and the hardest part for other people is to see where they're wrong. We don't like to admit that we're wrong. We, why? Because we've created our own little world. We like the way we want it. In Matthew, let's turn to Matthew 18. We, Dave read the first part of that portion for us. I want to look at the first part. It says, Woe to the world because of offenses. Notice this. For offenses what? What to say there? Must come. There's no avoiding offenses. It's, it's a fact of life. But woe to the man by whom the offense comes. If your hand or foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life maimed, lamed or maimed, or rather having two hands or two feet, and be cast in like a fire. Or if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out, cast it from you. It is better for you to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and being cast into hell. Now, does that mean we need to start distributing knives here and pokers to poke our eyes out? Obviously not. What he's saying here is when you have a sin issue, when there's offenses, do something drastic to get it resolved. Be creative, but do something that is, that is going to solve the problem and don't just candy coat it. Now it says, Take heed that you do not despise one of the little ones, for I say to you that 
It is in heaven. There are angels who always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which is lost. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine and go to the mountains and seek the one that is straying? If he should find it, surely I say to you, he rejoices more over than the sheep over the ninety-nine that did not go astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father who is in heaven, but the one of the little ones that should perish. What's the point of these verses? Restoration was achieved. Restoration was acquired. And that is our goal. That's the point of these. So we first must acknowledge that there's a problem. Matthew chapter 5. Since we're there, we're familiar with that passage. We've read it before. Excuse me one minute here. Matthew 5, 23-24 says, Therefore you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So we have to acknowledge there's a problem. Now we've talked about this a little bit before, about is this an offense that I need to address, or is this something I can let love cover? There's some things that are not worth getting upset over, so we're just not going to make an issue out of it. But if it's a serious sin issue, or if it's hurt our relationship, then we need to go to that person. Now, if both persons are godly, they're going to meet in the middle. But if they don't come, we keep on going until we get to them. And we talk to them. We must seek to reason with them from the scriptures. Now let's look at Acts 17, 17. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Paul here is seeking to bring these individuals together because there's a conflict. The Jews and the Gentiles aren't exactly worshiping well because they're two different forms of worship. And for the Jews, this was a tremendous, in fact, Mike has been addressing that with us in our morning Bible study hour, that the transition from the Judaism to the church age was a tremendous challenge for them because now Paul's telling them, you don't have to be circumcised. And the Jews made a big issue of that, bigger than it really should have been, but... But Paul was trying to draw a conclusion here and using the scriptures to do so. And then we need to warn of impending issues. 1 Thessalonians 5.14 Now we exhort you, brethren, warn those who are unruly, comfort the faint-hearted, uphold the weak, be patient with all. If you see someone who is going to do something to harm them, in fact, uh, I remember when we were building a church there in, in Hamlin, carpet was all laid down, hadn't only been down just a couple days, and we were starting to move some of the furniture in, and, and I grabbed the table, well, these plastic ones like we have upstairs, and I started dragging it across the carpet, and the builder yelled at me, Stop! He said, I'm sorry. I said, you weren't mad at me. You were just trying to warn me. 
You were trying to stop something. What he was, didn't want was me dragging that across the carpet and leaving a burn mark across the floor. He said, I've seen that happen. I didn't know how that happened on a brand new carpet. I said, I appreciate that. So it wasn't a, a mean yelling. It was a, an alarm type thing. And we have to warn in that way sometimes too. And I think, and we'll look at another verse later in just a little bit here in regard to that. The Bible says address sharply. Sometimes spiritually we have to get sharp to get to warn them. If you continue this, there's serious danger here for you spiritually. Now, as much as possible, it needs to be gentle. But sometimes we get into, let's say, for instance, you walk into a... Uh, uh, we'll use Pat for example because we know this will never happen. Walk into Pat's house and he's about to shoot up. <laughs> you know, we can laugh at that because we know we'd never do that. But what would I do? Would I say, "No, Pat, let's have a little sweet conversation here and let's see if we can." I might say, "Pat, what are you doing?" To warn him, this is dangerous business that you're doing. It's not mean. It's not ugly. It's it's a. A warning thing. This is dangerous. Let's not go there. Now, I know that's a way outlandish thing, and Pat would never do that, but have we ever stepped into the presence of a Christian and seen them do something that, that is dangerous, and we need to let them know, this is dangerous. Don't go there. So we need to warn them of this. Second Timothy chapter 2. And this is the part that we all struggle with. Especially when the approach has not been in a godly manner. 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 26. Be a servant of the Lord, must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. Able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they may come to their own senses and escape the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. And his isn't Christ, it's the devil's will. When people come at us, or we have to approach somebody, we have to ask this question. And again, Galatians 6.1 supports this by being careful about what you get involved in because you could get involved in that same trap. Are we teachable? I believe the number one thing that hurts Christians in these kind of things is I'm not teachable. I want what I want. I hear what I want. And I don't care who you are. I don't care what, in fact, some of us, I don't care. In fact, in counseling, I have some individuals that'll come for a week or two, and, and then they, in fact, I remember one distinctly, it was, it was a marriage thing. And the husband was really excited at first, because he was hearing all, all these things the wives were supposed to do. Then we started working on what the husband was supposed to do. He said, very little, I don't like that. I'm not going to be here. <laughs> And that was the last time we saw him. He wasn't teachable. He wanted a better marriage, but on his terms. It didn't matter what the book said. It didn't matter what God said. He wanted it on his terms. We have to be teachable, because, especially when the individual is coming to us with this book. And when we approach them, we better approach them with this book. Our own philosophies will not work. 
That's what gets us into trouble. So it says here, teach, be patient, humility. Uh, I was talking to a gentleman just yesterday about this humility thing. I believe our spiritual growth is directly proportional to our level of humility. In fact, just for a moment, was in my notes here, but let's turn to James chapter 4 because I want to point something out. I think this is very important in regard to this. James chapter 4 verse 7. Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will do what? All you got to do is resist him. He's going to flee. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. In fact, I believe he's already there. He's just waiting for us to come. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your heart, you're double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter return to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. Back up a verse. I missed one. Verse 6. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud but gives what to the humble? How important is grace to our spiritual growth? It is critical. How many of us want more grace? There's a very simple way to get it. Be more humble. As humility goes down, grace goes up. As pride goes up, grace goes down. They're directly proportional. We need to make it a number one priority to be humble before God. That means whatever God says, I do. And I'm glad to do it. Now let's look at 1 Timothy 5.1. 1 Timothy 5. We're not going to read the whole chapter because I just want to point out something here. A lot to read there. but We also need to take into consideration who we're addressing. All right? The elders of our church, deacons, pastors, teachers. We need to, if there is sin, it needs to be addressed. Do not think that you can ever not criticize your pastor. I'm telling you, your pastor is sinful just like everybody else. But it needs to be done with grace. Titus 1.13, that's the one I want to look at here in regard to this. Titus 1.13. The testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them how? Sharply. That they may be sound in the truth. So there are times when our, our, our approach needs to be sharp. But I believe it's in sharp as in a warning. If it's at all possible, we do it gently because people respond to that. But if it's something that is needs an immediate danger pretty sharp with it now that doesn't mean we come across what's wrong with you you fool and call them all kinds of names and be sarcastic no that's not what it's talking about we're to avoid our personal opinions and I was trying to find a verse and I can't find it because I don't know exactly how it's put but there's a verse that talks about avoid foolish talking Somebody can help me find that verse, but I couldn't find it because I, I can't remember exactly how the word goes. But we need to avoid our personal opinions and foolish talking. Any talking that is not founded in this book is foolish talking. And it should have no place in our conversation when we're trying to resolve things. Keep the word of God central. We can't go wrong on that. This book is never wrong. Spent some time talking to the gentleman this week. He believes the Bible, but. And you know what's behind that but. 
all kinds of little excuses as to, well, I don't quite believe this because that just doesn't make sense. It just is not logical. Well, you know, like we were talking about, where did everything begin? And he said, well, how is it possible that God didn't have a beginning? I said, let me ask you a question. That thing that blew up, where did it come from? Well, I, I, uh, and he's stammering because he doesn't know. I said, where did that come from? And, and I've had this conversation. Look at, where did that come from? Well, that came from this. Where did that it, somebody has to believe that there was something that always existed. Now, I told him, in my thinking, you can take this for what it's worth, it makes a whole lot more sense to believe that there was a God who is omniscient and omnipotent that could create everything from nothing and have it organized and work. Because in your philosophy, this evolved to here. Problem is, this wouldn't work without this, and so how did this work to get there? You need all those pieces to work in the beginning or it won't get there. Science proves God. The truth is what we need, and we never want to stray from it. Examples of indirect approaches. Sometimes we can be indirect. Let's turn to John chapter 4. And again, this is amazing, isn't it? Our Savior here. He's been walking, he's tired, and he's thirsty. And Mark, I read this whole passage because I think you're familiar with him, the Samaritan at the well. Verse 7, the woman of Samaria came to drink water, and Jesus said to her, give me to drink. He, she had no clue she was being set up. Four disciples had gone away into the city to buy food, and then the woman of Samaria said to him, how is it you being a Jew? I don't know how she knew he was a Jew, but she knew that somehow. Ask a drink of me, a Samaritan woman. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. And Jewish men didn't have anything to do with strange women either. So there's a double thing here. He's talking to a Samaritan and he's talking to a woman in a public place, which was not done in that time. And Jesus said to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See the setup? Very indirect, but he's getting to the point. And we know what the point is, don't we? He said, you're right, you're not married. Because the man you're living with isn't your husband, and you've been married five times. <laughs> he got to the point, didn't he? But he did it in an indirect manner. And setting her up in a way so that she, he had her attention about the water. Because why was she at the well by herself in the middle of the day? Because of her reputation. The other women didn't want to associate with her, and they heckled her when they came to the well together in the morning when they normally hauled her water. God knew what was happening here, and he was setting up and gently moving into the situation. We, it appears that this woman come to realize who he was. Now, again, we're not going to read chapter 15 of Luke, but there's a bunch of parables. And we know there's a lot of parables there. Why did Christ use parables? He was trying to take something that was of a heavenly value and use an earthly value to get the point across. An indirect way to get to the truth. If they really wanted the truth, they were going to look into the parable. 
Then Acts 17. We were there earlier, but let's turn there again and see the rest of that. Paul did the same thing in verse 22 of Acts 17. He says, Then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive in all things that you are very religious. Does he have their attention? <laughs> wow. Paul, he sees this is religious. I think I'll listen to this guy. He knows me. He knows me. I'm pretty good. But notice what he does then. For I, as, as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. Boy, was that a setup. Then Paul stood, or uh, then, therefore, and one of them you worship without him knowing, I proclaim him to you. you you've admitted there might be a God out there that we're not aware of. I know him. And he took that opportunity. Subtle, but yet very direct. Another conflict, a big one. Remember Esther? Situation there? Haman set it up so all the Jews are going to be slaughtered. Unknown to the king. But Esther, who's now the queen... She could have gone in there and said, I demand because I'm the queen and I'm a Jew. But what did she do? She had a banquet first. Trying to soften the king's heart up uh, so he'll listen to her. And I think this king had great respect, not just because of her beauty. I think what made her beautiful probably was her character. Because she prayed. In fact, isn't it Esther that the only book in the Bible that God's not mentioned? And yet God is very evident. <laughs> so she used a very subtle way to get to the truth, and the truth came out. And in fact, I have a situation now in counseling that I don't know what's going on. But I know that at some point, if we keep digging, the truth will come out. When the truth comes out, then we can deal with it. So Titus tells us sometimes because of the situation we might have to be a little more sharp and clear and precise quickly because of the possible danger that's going on spiritually. But most of the time we need to do it subtly. Not with the sinful tones that we come off sometimes. Restoration. The best way is face to face. Now, Sometimes we'll need a mediator because things are pretty intense. Let's go to Genesis. Well, we're not going to look at the whole thing. Let me just remind you what happened in Genesis. Remember Jacob and Esau? Two brothers in conflict. Jacob left the country. I don't remember how many years, but long enough that he developed a pretty good family. Wealth of his own. Remember what Jacob did when he came back he sent an entourage ahead to prepare the way to see if Esau would be willing to... And he, he said, I want you to give all these sheep to Esau. He was trying to prepare Esau's heart to be receptive. And then when the brothers did meet, what an amazing feat of God. Two brothers that were at odds with each other, hugged each other, and forgiveness was found. 
What about Joseph? Let's turn to Genesis 50. That's an amazing one, isn't it? Genesis 50. Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers. I don't think there's much brotherly love there. And yet Joseph was a godly man. Joseph dies. Now look at verse 15 and 16. When Joseph's brothers saw that their or their, their father dies, I'm sorry, not Joseph. Uh, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, perhaps Joseph will hate us and will actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. They still have guilt feelings? <laughs> yeah, they did. So they sent messengers to Joseph saying, before your father died, he commanded saying, they sent someone on ahead because there was an intense conflict that was still there in their hearts. Joseph, I don't believe, had any intense anger towards his brothers at all, but the brothers still felt guilty and thought, oh man, he's in a position, he can lop off our heads, and now that dad's gone, he just might do that. So they sent someone on ahead. We won't turn to this one, but it's in your notes. 1 Samuel 25, 18-25. Remember, David was hungry, his troop was there, they needed something to eat. And so he asked Nabal, oh, could you feed us? We were hungry. And Nabal was very, very nasty. <laughs> and Abigail, Nabal's wife, caught up to David and said, let me intercede on this. She knew she had an evil husband. But she fed him and took care of it. She became that go-between. Then another one. Again, when it's we don't want to read the whole chapter because it's lengthy to get the point. But 2 Samuel chapter 14, in that chapter, we find Absalom, who is David's son, they were at odds. In fact, Absalom set himself up as king for a time with David's wives in the public eye. So there was no question about what he was trying to accomplish. And David, at this point, wanted to avoid the conflict, so he backed away. David should not have done that, but he did. But Joab, one of his, his guards, one of his soldiers, one of his um, military leaders, sent a woman ahead between David and Absalom and to bring resolution. Barnabas did the same. Let's turn to that one, Acts chapter 9. It's a shorter passage. Acts chapter 9. We know there was a conflict between Paul and Mark. And when Saul had come to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid. Or No, this is not that. This is when Saul was getting coming into the church family. And of course, what did Saul just had been doing, he was killing Christians and they were a little bit nervous about him. And so Barnabas, verse 27, took him and brought him to the apostles and he declared to him how he had seen the Lord on the road and he had spoken to him and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Barnabas became the go-between between the disciples and Saul. And I I think I would have a respectful fear for him at that point in time too. 
But the approach must be done with respect. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, 3 through 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. In other words, it's not about me. That will solve 90% of our conflict when we realize it's not about me. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, which means we can look out for our own interest, but the emphasis should be on the interest of others. So there needs to be respect for each other. Now, if there's doctrinal issues, we can't change doctrine. We stand on doctrine. We don't move from doctrine. But as we know from Romans 14, there's a lot of room for preferences in some areas. And we need to allow each other our preferences. So we must avoid diversions that will hinder the restoration. So our personal preferences, our cultural traditions, sometimes those can get in the way. In fact, I think Mike was mentioning something this morning that years ago, when you went to church, you always wore a suit, coat, and tie. We don't do that today. Not as much anymore. Some of us still do. Because we're still from that culture. But the younger generation, they're not going to be there as much. Do we like it? Maybe not. But there's nothing says in Scripture how to dress. That's a cultural thing. In fact, I was noticing here that more and more of our people are coming to church with their Bible on iPads and Kindles. I wonder how that might affect some of the saints that think this is the only thing that we can carry the Bible in. That's a cultural thing. And you know I don't care for computers much. <laughs> I'd rather not do it. And if it wasn't a cultural thing that could be effective at communicating God's Word, I wouldn't waste my time with it. But I believe it's an effective tool to be more effective at teaching the Word of God. And so, uh, to the best of my ability, I learn. And if it wasn't for my wife and daughter, I'd, I wouldn't get as far as I do. But they, they help me out a lot there. And, uh, and those guys in the back booth there help me out a lot. And culture things that... Uh, I, I wrestled with those things for years in some areas. But I've come to realize that this is the authority. Not my opinion. If we have an opinion that doesn't match the Bible, what do we change? Our opinion, not the Bible. If there's cultural things going on, and, and some of you have been around a lot longer than I have been, but you remember when there weren't any TVs and they came in, and TV's just started. I don't know if there's anybody here old enough to remember horse and buggy, but... <laughs> I do. <laughs> oh, you're not that old, Loretta. <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> well, I, I know you know horse and buggy, but I mean used horse and buggy for their mode of transportation. Knowledge today has transformed society a great deal. You know, and we're, and I, I've seen this happen over the years with missionaries that went to Africa, South Africa, Central America, and began to build a church and seeing people get saved and disciple them. You know what their major mistake was and why they didn't make it on the field? 
they tried to Americanize people that did not understand American culture. Our missionaries realized that eventually, and now they, they train our missionaries, teach the people the sin, but you adapt to their culture. Use their music that's not sinful. Use their, I mean, some of those folks, if, if you know, we, we dress well here, but you get some of these African tribes, they love their colors, you know. Yes, In fact, they will even dance in a service. That would really make us nervous, wouldn't it? But it's part of their culture, and it's nothing wrong with it. And so you have to adapt. In fact, when maybe when Emerson's uh, uh, get here from Chile, they'll be able to share some things that they had to. They had to adult, adapt to the culture and not make them Americanized. In fact, I believe sometimes I misinterpret this book sometimes because I don't look at it from the eyes of a Jew. I look at it from the eyes of an American. And we need to look at the culture. Those things do make a difference. And so in our, when we come to a, a disagreement, and I know if you've been married, you've had them. And you're going to continue to have them. Go to the Word. It's the truth. Change it together. You both benefit. But if we're going to try to build our own kingdom with our own ideas and our own opinions, and if both do that, then you got great conflict because you got two people trying to build two kingdoms and the kingdoms aren't matching up. We're here for one purpose and one purpose only, aren't we? To build His kingdom. Amen. And when we do that together, Satan's cannot prevail against it. That's right. It's an impossibility. And so, seek restoration, use the Word of God, seek the truth out. And we got men and women in this church that, if you don't know where to turn, go to them. We got deacons and former deacons and their wives that you can go to and say, we, don't, we know there's a problem here, but we don't know where the resolution is. We don't know what the truth is. Could you help us? I guarantee you they will sit down with you and take you through the Word at God and, and help you find it. And if they can't, we'll find somebody that can. And I've been in the ministry long enough now. It's been a long time since somebody's asked me a question I haven't had before, and I know the answers. It is amazing to watch the transformation of people's lives and marriages that come together that were on the verge of divorce and in some cases one I can think of there was a divorce <laughs> but they came and said we, we want to try it God's way that's a good place to start and then marriage comes in and remarriage comes in and the marriages become stronger. And one couple, I didn't know it could be this good. And some of you know what I'm talking about because you've been there. And your marriages are better now than they've ever been. And it wasn't because you went to, you know, with some of these Dr. Ruth or Dr. whoever, these uh, Dear Abby, you know. <laughs> Somewhere along the line, you on your own or you found someone that took you to the truth. And then you and your wife, you and your husband, you and your children sat down together and say, please forgive me.
I've been trying to push my own agenda. And I want to do it God's way. That's humility. When humility goes down, grace comes up. When grace goes up, transformation takes place. And that's what God wants us to do. So don't be afraid of conflict. Again, I look at it this way. Conflict is like purifying gold. Because when you and I have conflict, what comes out of us early on? The worst in me. Why did God bring that conflict? He wanted me to see it. So I can deal with it. And the other person sitting in the other chair, same way. Let's acknowledge it together and let God make the transformation. That's what it's all about. Loretta? Um, let me just say that um, I have a short... Let me just say that you and God has really... During the counseling uh, uh, assessments that we've had, that you and God has really, really changed me, and I appreciate it. Thank you. Let's pause one minute. What happened in that first counseling session together, already? That that I accepted the good Lord as my Savior. She came with a concern and. The next week she comes and says, I don't have that concern anymore. Oh. Now I won't go into details unless she wants to share it, but that's what oh, God does. And I, and I do, and I do. <laughs> <laughs> I was hoping she would. <laughs> You're going to preach now, are you? <laughs> no. Why don't you, why don't you just share with them why you came to me in the first place, all right? And, and then we'll, we'll share what brought you to that point of salvation. Um, one, uh, one morning I have a... I I was so afraid of storms that um, that I was that I was so afraid of thunderstorms and and I said and I said dear lord help me to be not so afraid and sure enough sure enough you all can cry with me. I don't care. Um, sure enough, he did help me. And I'm not so afraid anymore. Remember when you first came? What were you sad about when you first came? Of your grandmother? Um, my, uh, my grandmother had, had just passed away not, not too long ago. And, and I was so so afraid I would never, never, ever see her again. And you can see how that conversation went from there, didn't you? I said, you can have a reunion with your grandmother again. And that's why she made that decision for Christ. And so, she's our sister now, right? This is the first yes. chance she's had to share with us since then. Yes. Thank you, Larry. You can be seated now. Thank you. Yep. The hope of eternity. Focusing on Christ. That's what it's all about. Let's pray. Father, thank you for being the God that you are. You're wise enough not to shield us from conflicts, but to use those conflicts to see our own sinfulness 
to seek humility because of what Christ has done for us on the cross and then draw upon your grace. Father, when future conflicts come between us, disagreements, help us, Father, to pause long enough to ask honestly, God, am I wrong here in any way? Help me see it clearly. I want to confess it before you. I want to repent of it before you. I want to learn how much you love me so I can love you more. May we respond in these ways. And, and each time these disagreements come, might it just be another small step in developing our love for you. We know your love for us can't get any better. It's already 100%. On our worst day, it's still 100%. We never have to worry about any conflict coming from you. It's always going to come from me. And help me, Father, to honestly examine my heart, my motives, who I'm loving, you or me, and put myself last, put you first, and whoever it is that I may be in disagreement with, that we might find a biblical resolution that we might reflect to a world around, that is lost and dying around us that there is hope in Jesus Christ. We thank you for Loretta's testimony that to the death of her grandmother, whom she missed, she now realizes that there was no distance there, just an anticipation of a reunion taking place. We thank you, God, for how you work in our lives. What seemed to be a, a tragedy and, and a difficult time was used to bring an individual to face the fact that they need Christ. And so, Father, once again, we bring Joyce before you. She longs to be with you, and we know that will be soon. May Steve draw upon your grace as he commits the life of his wife to you. And... and we think of Richard now with his aunt, whatever's taking place there, that your will be done there as well. And we ask these things in our Savior's name. Amen.